there is, I think, some maybe potential for uh, need for clarification on aspects of today's passage. I do want to encourage you, this is always an option, but uh, especially this week, to text in questions, 224-300-0240. And uh, today I, I, I intend to respond to those before we even, even leave here. So let's pray together now that we would have ears to hear what God would have to say in his word. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's a strange phenomenon, I think, that if we took a poll in each of our neighborhoods asking, are greed and materialism major problems in our world? We'd find widespread agreement in the affirmative, I think. But then, if we, if we, what if we followed that question up with this question? Are you greedy and materialistic? How many would say yes? Right? It's fascinating, isn't it, how <clears throat> we all think greed and materialism are rampant, but none of us think that we are the greedy, materialistic ones. One reason for that phenomenon is that we tend to compare ourselves not to the urban poor or to the rest of the globe, but to those who exist in our immediate bubbles. That's why only 2% of Americans identify themselves as upper class. It's our impulse not to compare ourselves to the 1.9 billion people around the world living on less than a dollar a day. Instead, we instinctively compare ourselves to the people we know who have more than we do. The fact is that if we want to justify our own relationship to money, as we all have incentive to do, we'll always be able to find somebody who's more greedy, more materialistic than we are. Pastor Sean launched us in last week to a series that we're calling Jesus versus Idols. His sermon primed the pump uh, for us to examine our hearts, uh, to approach the scripture text in these series with humble introspection. So for the next seven weeks, we're going to take one idol per week. Seven idols that Jesus confronted during his ministry, which we might also be tempted to worship here on the North Shore today. But <clears throat> this whole idea of worshiping idols, maybe that seems odd to you. Maybe, maybe when you hear idol, you picture a golden calf, like the ones you see uh, around here. Like, does anybody actually worship idols anymore? We'd like to think of ourselves as more enlightened than that. Right? That we can see that a hunk of metal isn't worth much, isn't worth our worship. It certainly can't actually do anything for us. But as Christian theologians for the last 2,000 years have pointed out, just because we don't have shrines in our homes doesn't mean we don't worship idols. John Calvin famously said it this way, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Uh, I didn't have that one up there. Perpetual factory of idols. If, if Calvin and others are reading scripture correctly, they're identifying that we are inclined in our sinful nature to produce gods that we will then worship in place of the one true God. And if that's true, then our modern idols are every bit as real as the golden calves of old. They're just maybe a bit more subtle. So here are a few working definitions of idolatry that we'll return to throughout this series. Ready? So idolatry, 
is trusting in created things rather than the creator. You've probably heard that one before. Many have stated it that way. An idol is something in creation that claims the place in my heart that only God should have. That's how Paul Tripp puts it. And then just another angle on the same idea from Tim Keller. An idol is anything in your life that is so central to your life that you can't have a meaningful life if you lose it. In other words, idolatry is anything you look at and in your heart of hearts you say to it, if I have that, then my life has value. Then my life has meaning. And if I lose that, I don't know how I would live. Wealth is the first idol that we're looking at in our series. Why start with that one? Let me highlight three reasons. One, Jesus always seemed to be warning about idolizing wealth. Even if we took two of our eight sermons in this series to talk about wealth, some scholars would argue that that 25% rate would actually underrepresent the proportion of Jesus' teachings that dealt with money. It's everywhere in his sermons. Second, we live in an extremely wealthy place, globally and historically speaking. And that's not to say that poor people can't idolize wealth. They certainly can. But the Bible suggests that it's more tempting to idolize wealth the more of it that you have. Right? In case you're not sold that you're rich, one more piece of just data to chew on, one more perspective. If you make $4,000 a month, maybe you've heard this, if you make $4,000 a month, you're in the top 1.7% of earners worldwide. And you make 17 times more than the median individual on the planet. We don't feel like we're rich, but most of us are. And the Bible doesn't say that's sin, but it does say it puts us in danger. Third, wealth seems to be the idol that none of us can see in ourselves. Seems to be the idol none of us can see ourselves. I know pastors of 40 plus years who say that they have never once had someone in their congregation come to them confessing greed. All, all manner of sins people confess, not that one. And, and I actually believe it. You know, these last couple months, I think back on the Lent devotionals that we made uh, by video, 40 devotionals created by us here in this congregation, right? Shared only privately with our congregation because the prompt was somewhat invasive this year, right? Share about an idol in your life that God is helping you turn away from. The videos that you all shared, they were heartfelt. Uh, they were vulnerable. I was moved by every single one of them. But I noticed as I was preparing the sermon, as I look back on those 40 videos, how many of us jumped at the opportunity to confess idolizing wealth? And listen, I'm, I'm not pointing the finger, believe me. I had two chances. I started and finished the series, and I didn't touch that one, Right? I was actually so proud of the one individual who did confess an attachment to find things as a manifestation of her idol of comfort. Honestly, I was shocked and incredibly inspired by her bravery. Which of us are even willing to see this idol in ourselves, much less to confess it publicly? Because of the deceitful nature of the idol of wealth, because of its ability to blind us to its existence in our hearts, I want to make this request at the outset today, okay? I want to humbly ask that you join me in approaching our scripture text today with this posture. It is very likely that I idolize wealth. Would you join me in approaching this text with that posture? It is very likely that I 
idolize wealth. Maybe you don't. But if you did, you probably wouldn't know it. So can we approach the word with that posture today? We'll spend our time in Matthew 19. Thanks for turning there with me, following along. Would you turn there with me if you haven't yet? As you're getting there, let me uh, set it up briefly. This is a story about Jesus' encounter with a man sometimes called the rich young ruler. Because of those descriptors, each of those descriptors, rich, young, and ruler, is used of him somewhere in the various gospel accounts of this conversation. The encounter takes place on Jesus' way to Jerusalem, uh, the place where he knows he's going to die. He's got crowds following him at this point. They've seen the miracles, and though some remain hostile to Jesus, many are becoming huge fans of his. And right after an episode in which Jesus baffles his disciples by spending time with little children, Matthew takes us to the rich young ruler. And in contrast to those helpless little children that Jesus was just commending, this guy has everything going for him. He's rich, which was seen then as an indication of God's favor. He's young, he's respected, he's morally upright, he has a great reputation. When somebody like this comes to Jesus, asking how to get eternal life, the disciples must have been thinking, this is the kind of guy who for sure is going to go home saved. Let's see if that's how it actually works out. We'll pick up the narrative at verse 16 and read as we go. The passage unfolds like this. A seeker, an invitation, a choice, and a question. A seeker, an invitation, a choice, and a question. First, a seeker. What we'll see in verses 16 to 20 is a rich man who wants eternal life. Follow along with me as I read. And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Those final words say so much, don't they? What do I still lack? Think about it. Did Jesus tell him he lacked something? No. So why does he think he lacks something? As far as we can tell, that sense seems to come from within. He feels an emptiness in his soul that just refuses to be filled. He, he knows that even though he's done so much right, the life he's presently experiencing isn't the rich, full, vibrant, eternal life that the scriptures speak about and that Jesus is preaching about. And that lack drives him to Jesus. We all probably know some version of that feeling, at least. The feeling when you, you just can't put your finger on it, but you just know something's missing. You know that feeling? Something's just not right. It's like when I was in college. <clears throat> About 40 shrimp deep into a bucket with some of my friends, right? Uh, back when, in a day when that, I could just do that. When one of the guys asked me, hey, hey Tim, you've been going hard on those shrimp. What have you been putting, where have you been putting your shells? Now, I knew there was just something a little bit off about these shrimp. Like, they were good, but they weren't, like, exactly hitting the spot like I expected them to. 
And the question about what I was doing with my shells helped me understand why they weren't hitting the spot. That was the night that I found out that shrimp have shells. And that my whole life my mom had been peeling the shells off the shrimp before they reached my plate. Who could have known? I should have tasted that first extra crunchy shrimp and said, there's something I'm missing here. Something's off. Let me stop and figure this out. That's what the rich man in our story does. He knows there's something missing, so he's determined that he's not doing anything else until he figures out what it is that he lacks. When I read this, I think there's a lot to be commended about this guy. He's asking for the right thing, eternal life. He's asking with the right attitude, deference and respect. He's asking the right person, not just any teacher, but the very source of eternal life. None of that would have been easy for this guy with everything he had going for him. Imagine him having to push through the crowds of people who admire and respect him. He's probably a synagogue ruler as far as we can tell from the language in the other Gospels. Imagine how he has to humble himself in order to publicly admit that he needs help. One of the other Gospels tells us he falls on his knees before Jesus. He's past the point of being concerned with his reputation. There's a version of life that he knows exists and he knows he hasn't yet found it. And so he's desperate. How do we expect Jesus to respond to him? You might expect Jesus to say, I'm proud of you taking the risk. Now pray this prayer after me and you'll be saved. It's not what Jesus says. Instead, he challenges this man in two ways. First, he challenges the man's standard of goodness. Verse 17. He can tell that this guy thinks he's pretty good, thinks he has it in him to do enough good to attain eternal life. So Jesus offers a gentle challenge. Hey, why do you ask me about what is good? You know there's only one who's good? Implication. If there's only one who's good, you'll never be him. But since he knows this young man will have a hard time internalizing his failure to meet God's standard of goodness, Jesus takes him to the law next which is God's revealing of that standard of goodness. So here's Jesus. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Verse 17. But it still just doesn't quite click for this man. He's thinking, yeah, well, I've been pretty good about keeping the commandments. Just to be sure, let me ask Jesus, hey, hey Jesus, which ones? And even after Jesus has listed a few from the back half of the Ten Commandments, Along with the summary command from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, the rich man, he still hasn't registered any areas of deficiency within himself. See verse 20? All these I have kept. What do I still lack? For all that can be commended about this seeker of eternal life, he's utterly blind to his sin. And and I hate to admit it, but I know I'm right there with him. Like that day when I ate the shrimp with the shells, I tried to play it off by telling my friends, my family must have eaten the shrimp with the shells on growing up. That was my first response. So they made me call my mom on speaker (laughs) that moment so they could hear her refute my claim, which of course she did. She was horrified. But then, listen to this though, when I hung up the phone, do you know what my 20-year-old self did? I defiantly popped a couple more in my mouth, shells and all. And I I realized this week, thinking back on that, that's a picture of what our idols do to us, actually. 
When an idol has its firm hold on our life, when it has its tentacles sufficiently wrapped around our hearts, we maybe know something's off, like this rich young ruler did, like I did. But the idol has made us so blind that we aren't able to identify the sin in our hearts that is making us feel off, much less turn from it. Even when we can sense there's a lack, when someone gently tries to show us the problem that's causing the lack, we dismiss them. Just like the rich young ruler dismisses Jesus. No, it's not the commandments. I'm good at keeping those. Just like I did. No, it's, it's not a problem with the shells, shrimp or shells, no problem for me. We can't see. We're blind. But Jesus can see this guy's heart. And I think it's because Jesus can see the blinding effects of idolatry on this man's life that he responds to him the way he does. He responds with invitation. Verse 21. We're about to see an invitation to leave wealth to obtain eternal life. Look at that with me. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. These words in verse 21 constitute Jesus' loving, all-out, frontal assault on this man's source of his blindness. Consider this. Why does Jesus call him to sell everything? Never before or after this does Jesus command someone to sell everything they have. In fact, Jesus assures many people of salvation without a word about their money. And in the very next chapter, a super rich dude is going to give away only half his wealth, not all of it, when he gives his life to Jesus. And Jesus is going to commend him for it. That's Zacchaeus. Why does this particular guy have to give away all of it? The short answer is because you can't follow Jesus and worship idols. And the primary command here, the universal command that applies to all of us who want eternal life, is the one in the end of verse 21. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Look at it. Truly I say to you, if you have, uh, or, or sorry, um, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Friends, there's no version of Christianity, no path to obtaining eternal life apart from following Jesus, which means walking as he walked, 1 John 2.6, which means giving up our idols, which means letting him call the shots. And the one who calls the shots says it this way, in context of this verse, he happened to be talking about money at the time. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. In other words, because money had become a master to this guy, it wouldn't be possible for this guy to follow Jesus and keep the other master. So Jesus commands him to lay it down. And in doing so, Jesus is inviting him into the only life that will ever satisfy, namely, life with God as his one and only master, his one and only Lord. Until the man accepts that invitation, and until you and I accept that invitation to lay down our own idols to follow Christ, our idols will make us blind. Why? Because people become like whatever they worship. That's a principle we see throughout the Bible. We see it, for example, in Psalm 115, where it says, Those who make idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. 
The more we worship God, the more we become like him. The more we worship idols, the more we become like them. In what way do we become like our idols? This psalm is one of many places in the Old Testament, if you read the whole thing, where we see the answer. Just like idols have eyes but can't see and ears but can't hear, so the worshipers of idols. When we worship idols, we become blind and deaf to reality, just like these lifeless idols are. The golden calf, right? Our senses get dulled, and we see it in this man, don't, don't we? Let me just give, provide two of the dynamics that he was blind to in this story. One, he couldn't see that his love of money was keeping him from true wealth. He couldn't see it. Do you notice how Jesus reminds him in verse 21? That there's a treasure in heaven, a true treasure that he's completely missing out on by chasing scraps here on earth. He couldn't see that his yearning for earth's monopoly money was meant to point him to the God-given desire with him and within all of us for true, lasting wealth and treasure. Secondly, what else? He, he, he was blind to. He couldn't see that if he really loved his neighbor as himself, which he claimed he did in verse 20, he'd be able to carry out this command with joy. Right? Think about it. If I love my neighbor as myself, then giving him all my stuff, that'll make me just as happy as keeping all of it for myself. But because his idol had made him blind, he saw no contradiction between his claim of love and his clinging to wealth. Friends, is it possible that the idol of wealth has made us similarly blind? And if I say, no, that's not me, I might be right in my self-assessment. On the other hand, it's also exactly what I would conclude if this idol had made me blind, right? So here are three diagnostic questions from Paul Tripp, and we'll return to these three throughout the series because they're generalized. I'm inserting the word wealth in each of these three questions to apply it directly to today's sermon, but we'll look at it in future weeks with regards to other idols. First, am I willing to sin to get wealth? That's one way to diagnose whether it's become an idol for me? Am I willing to sin to get wealth? Am I willing to bend the rules on my taxes? Am I willing to fudge some numbers here and there? Second, am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose wealth? Am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose wealth? Well, most of us won't take a loaf of bread from the grocery store. We might be tempted to use our business accounts for personal purchases when times are tight. Might we engage in some creative accounting if we feel our wealth is in danger? Third diagnostic question, do I turn to wealth as a refuge and comfort instead of going to God? Do I turn to wealth as a refuge and comfort instead of going to God? Does it make it a good day or a bad one for me when the markets are up or down? Does a hit to my income or my retirement account make me lose sleep? If the answer is yes, if my answer is yes to any of these, then this is becoming or is, has become an idol for me. And like the rich young ruler, I have a choice. And that's where we go next, to the choice. Verses 22 and 24. Unfortunately, he chooses wealth over eternal life. Let's look at it. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This man, friends, would have done almost anything to obtain eternal life. You could see his desperation at the beginning of the passage. He just isn't willing to dethrone his wealth. He can't bring himself to do it. He, lo- he loves it too much. He can envision life without Jesus, maybe. He can't envision life without his stuff. Now, I should qualify that, right? Because maybe this man turned back later and gave it all away and started following Jesus. But as the story ends, all we know is that he's walking away sad with no indication he has any intention of accepting Jesus' offer of heavenly treasure. Are you surprised that Jesus doesn't chase him down? I mean, think about it. This is the kind of guy who could do so much for the kingdom of God, right? With all his wealth, and influence. If Jesus would have just run him down and thrown an arm around him and said, listen, maybe I pushed a little hard back there, right? Like, how about you and me, we just meet halfway, right? Just give me a little something for now. Give a little bit away right now. We'll work on the rest later, right? Listen, Jesus loves this man. Mark's account of this story tells us that explicitly. But friends, I don't know who needs to hear this, but... There's nothing for Jesus to chase down this guy and say. Because, by definition, it's not possible to follow Jesus and hold on to our idols. But it's likely that a great number of American Christians have been deceived into thinking they're following Jesus. Because years ago, when they expressed hesitation about laying down some idols in their life, some pastor or preacher or parent who's very well-meaning said, Listen, it's not that extreme. You can keep your idol. You don't have to get all radical about Christianity. Just go to church. Be a decent person. You'll be fine. And as a result, these poor, deceived idol worshipers are sitting in a pew somewhere this morning feeling blissfully assured because of a person in their life who, if they had the opportunity would have chased down even the rich young ruler and watered down Jesus' words into something more palatable. According to Jesus, either the idols go or we can't follow him. And I wonder for how many Western Christians the same idol of wealth is the one that we haven't laid down. After all, when the man walks away sorrowful, do you see Jesus' response? Effectively, he turns to his disciples and says this, Many rich people will make this same choice. You see it? Verse 23. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, caveats. One, Jesus isn't saying that no rich people will be in heaven not what he's saying that would rule out abraham job wealthy people who hosted churches in their homes in the first century all of whom are commended for their use of their wealth not condemned for it second jesus also isn't saying that all poor people will be in heaven because there are plenty of scriptures about people who are poor because they've acted foolishly in their rejection of god so jesus isn't saying that money's evil he's saying it's dangerous it's a live wire so here's where i go with all that personally when I reflect on passages like this one. And I've told you this before. In hindsight, 
it, it seems like every generation of Christians in every place on earth seems to have had at least one glaring blind spot. Have you ever noticed that? When you look at the heroes of the faith for the past 2,000 years, you end up learning something about them. You're like, wait, what? Anti-Semitism, slavery, the social gospel? So that gets me thinking, what's, what's our blind spot? What's my blind spot? What's going to be that thing that future generations look back on us and say, oof, they were Christians, but they had that going on? And then I think this, if, just as a hypothesis, if wealth was that blind spot for any group of Christians in the past 2,000 years, isn't it likely that it would be us, the Christians with more wealth than any Christians have ever had? I don't know. I mean, when faced with the choice of holding on to our wealth or following Jesus, which is a choice that we'll all face in small ways, if not big ways, what choice do we make? I think we need to consider this on the corporate level as a church and also on the individual or family level as a church. Many of you know that reflection on passages like this one has led us to change our budgeting practices in the past two years. We've had to do the hard work of refusing the North Shore approach to church budgeting, namely living beyond our means to spend tons of money on a bloated staff because we have to compete with the other congregations in the area for church consumers who are looking for a place to consume. That shift has been painful, really painful. But as a result of that painful right-sizing of our staff, in the last year, you and I today will vote at the congregational meeting on a budget in which a little more of what comes in will be going out to missions than has been true in our recent history. But then as individuals also, you and I have to make some of those same hard decisions. American Christians, we are 450% richer than we were during the Great Depression, adjusted for inflation right, and taxes. Yet, we give less of our wealth as a percentage than we did then. Did you know that? Than we did in 1933, the average... Christian in America, Protestant Christian. When does it change? Where's the church that God will use to stir a revival of wealthy Christians, making radically painful sacrifices to use our wealth for God's kingdom instead of holding on to it for ourselves? This man made his choice. He went away sad because laying down his idol of wealth was too much. If you've been convicted this morning, by God's spirit, that wealth may be an idol for you, what choice do you make? Finally, all this causes Jesus' disciples to ask an all-important question. That's where we'll look at the last two verses of the text. An all-important question, who can be saved? Who can be saved? Let's look at it. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I want to zero in on this astonishment for a second. Verse 25. What makes them astonished? What makes Jesus' disciples astonished? For one thing, this flies in the face of their assumptions about who is most likely to have a place in the kingdom of God. Wealth was believed to be a sign of God's favor. Not only is this guy wealthy, he's morally upright. He's a synagogue ruler. So the disciples' heads are spinning. They were just baffled in the last story by Jesus' welcoming of little ones, and now Jesus is going to turn away a great one? But the disciples aren't the only ones astonished. 
For 2,000 years, Christians have struggled so much with this story that they've tried hard to explain away the uncomfortable parts. Right? So maybe you've heard at some point the outlandish claim that the eye of the needle was the name of a gate in Jerusalem that a camel could have fit through, just would have been hard, right? Which is not only false, but totally undermines Jesus' point about this being impossible, to use his word. Or maybe you've heard a preacher preach this passage and reassure you, like, like, hey, now Jesus, he's not asking you personally to sell everything that you have today. I don't know about you, I always wondered when preachers say that, how do you know? Like, did God tell you that definitively, that Jesus isn't issuing that same command to me today? After all, as several commentators have pointed out, the fact that Jesus didn't tell anyone besides this man to sell everything they have is only reassuring to the type of person to whom Jesus would give this same command. Let me say that again. The fact that Jesus only gave this command to one person is only reassuring to the type of person to whom Jesus would give this command. In our astonishment, we got to make sure we don't smooth the rough edges off of this. Salvation is humanly impossible, even for the quote-unquote most likely of us. The only reason it's possible is because of God. Verse 26, with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Friends, may we never cease to be shocked that we were saved. And if you haven't yet been saved, you don't need an extra good deed to do, like the man was seeking in verse 16. What you need is a triumph of grace, a victory of mercy over the record of your sin. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. He came not to give us a prescription for how to live the sort of life that would earn us heaven. He came to live the sort of life that would earn heaven in our place. And then he died in our place to bear the punishment we deserved for our colossal failure to meet God's standard of goodness. That's why we can only receive eternal life if we approach God like a child might approach him, the children in the passage right preceding this one. Coming to him in our strength, asking for a good deed to do, that self-reliance actually precludes us from accepting the free gift. We can't take it. We can only receive the gift if we come to him in our weakness, like children, knowing that we could never, ever do a deed good enough. Our big idea today is this. Even if it means parting with possessions, let's fight to treasure Christ over wealth. Even if it means parting with possessions, Let's fight to treasure Christ over wealth. We noted at the outset that almost everyone thinks that wealth is an idol out there, but almost nobody thinks it's their idol, my idol. But we said almost everybody for a reason. And I want to close by noting one exception. Andrew Carnegie, one of the wealthiest Americans ever, he actually knew that wealth was his idol. He was able to see it. Take a look at what he wrote in a note to himself at age 33, when he was already super rich. Man must have an idol. Quite insightful. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. 
to continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. So here's his solution that he commits to himself in his note to self. I will resign business at 35. But during the ensuing two years, I wish to spend the afternoons in securing instruction and in reading systematically. Andrew Carnegie was the rare person who could see this idol taking over his life and debasing him, to use his word. Yet, did he follow through on this pledge to resign business two years after writing this? He went on to amass an inflation-adjusted net worth of $310 billion while he worked many of his poorly paid workers literally to death. He could see the idol right there, yet he was powerless in the end to do anything about it. Friend, if you've become aware this morning that you idolize wealth, you need to know that it will not work to willpower your way into removing it. Your only hope for dislodging that idol is if you can replace it specifically with a vision of Christ going to the cross on your behalf. Do you realize what was happening as Jesus completed his journey from heavenly riches to the humility of existence as a baby human and then on down to the most shameful human death in his adult years? 2 Corinthians 8 9 tells us he was laying down his riches during that journey to become poor. So that, out of our poverty, we would become eternally rich. Here's what it says, 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the gospel. And when that hits you, when it hits me, that's how our idol of wealth gets toppled, and we are set free to use it for God's glory. It's only only in that vision of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that there's a treasure greater than the treasures of this world. We thank you that when we're let down by this world's treasures, that you allow us to be let down in your grace to point us to something greater that is to be found in you. Thank you for laying down, thank you for sending Christ to lay down his riches, to become poor for our sake so that we might become rich. Help that vision to captivate us in such a way that we too are willing to say in the song that we sung earlier on, not a mite will I withhold if the Lord so calls. In Jesus' name, amen.